Scripture reading this morning is the Old Testament, Ezra chapter 3, the whole chapter. Ezra chapter 3, the page is, in the Pew Bibles, is 463. 463 in your Pew Bibles is Ezra 3. When the seventh month came, and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. But the morning and evening, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons, And the carpenters gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs from by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josedek, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hadaviah and the sons of Hanadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundations of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. 
no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Well, happy St. Patrick's Day on Friday. St. Patrick's Day has uh, become an opportunity to celebrate all things Irish. And, of course, what does that mean, right? I mean, what does it mean? What, uh, what are the Irish known for? Well, some chuckles, okay, all right. <laughs> they are known for their corned beef, cabbage, and shepherd's pie. Just this past Friday at our community group, Michelle Chun and Christine Rodriguez whipped up some banging versions of shepherd's pie and corned beef and cabbage. And Irish are known for that. What else are they known for? They're known for the color green. Um, so I'm hearing shamrocks. Is that what I'm hearing out there? Shamrocks. Yeah, okay, good, good. Yep, I uh, wasn't expecting this to be audience participation, but why not, you know? Uh, oh, they're known, for, well, they're known for their temper, Irish temper. I mean, I'm a Hanley. I know, I, I know all about this in my family, right? I mean, Irish are known for lots of different things, right? The question I want to open us up with this, uh, this morning is, as Christians, what are we known for? As Christians, what are we known for? We're continuing in our series on the book of Ezra, and... What we're, we're seeing each week is that we're, we're seeing the book of Ezra as, as nothing short of an invitation for our souls to come back to God. It's an invitation for our souls to come back to God. It's an invitation for us to, to come and rebuild our souls as the, the stones of the temple, as the temple itself. It's an opportunity. So we're seeing this. This is about the Israelites coming back and rebuilding the, the physical temple. And we're seeing it, we're seeing it as an opportunity for us to come back and rebuild our souls as the very place where God's Spirit resides. We're seeing that, that in light of the coming of Christ, Christ has delivered us from exile as they were delivered from exile in Babylon at the hand of King Cyrus we, through Jesus' death and resurrection, have been set free from the powers of sin and idolatry. And so we've been called out of exile, called out of exile to, to come back and for our souls to rebuild our souls as the temple is the very place where God's Spirit resides. And, and, and what we discovered is that the qualifi- qualifications to come back, what qualifies you to come back is nothing other than faith. It's just simply relying on God, trusting in God for your worth and your value. Recognizing that your worth and your value comes from nothing in you. (laughs) Your worth and your value comes from nothing in you or anything that you do. That God, I said this last week, God doesn't love you because of some intrinsic worth in you. That your worth comes from the fact that God loves you. And so we don't come and we're not qualified because of something in us or something that we've done. But because of what Jesus has done on the basis of his grace, through faith in that, 
recognizing that, not seeking to steal God's glory by trying to establish our own worth and identity through our whatever it is that we do. So it's relying on that. It's relying, it's, it's faith. It's, it's faith in His sovereignty, recognizing in humility that we, you know, we can't make it. We can't do it on our own. And so, and that's not just a mental ascent thing like, oh yeah, I know I need Jesus, I need Jesus, I need Jesus. No, but like a, a daily, I need you as I go through my life. It's a faith that works itself out in the intricacies of life. God, I need you. It's faith. That's what qualifies you to come back. That's, that's what it is. And, and then we've seen what, what are the, the materials to rebuild the temple. What are the materials? As they, as they used gold and silver, we don't use gold and silver to rebuild our souls. Or we, we use things like prayer and meditation on the Word of God and confession. Right, we have this, that confession tree out in the narthex there. It's there throughout this season leading up to Easter to remind us of the power of confession. And you know, like I said before, it, it, don't, we're not getting weird. You don't have to go to the confession tree to confess your sins. We're not getting weird here. It's there to remind us, just to remind us of the, of the power of confession. The confession is, is one of the avenues, one of the, well, one of the materials that God has given us to rebuild the temple, I, I said that, that confession is a little bit like throwing up, right? Nobody wants to throw up, right? But when you're sick, when you're really sick, you come to know the only thing that is going to make you feel better is to throw up, right? And the, the reality is we all, we all have sin in our lives that we've confessed, sin against us, sin that we've sinned against others. It just kind of kind of sits in there and gurgles in your stomach, and you know that the only way you can get it out is confession. Only way you'll ever be free from it. And so confession is this, this material that God's given us to rebuild our temple. So confession, uh, fasting, fasting can be, right? Again, let's not give, remember, the, this isn't what qualifies you for the kingdom. This is what qualifies you to rebuild the temple. I've already established that, right? This is a vehicle which, which enables you to, to draw yourself into the presence of God and for the Spirit of God to come in. And, and fasting is one of these things. And so we've encouraged people to give up certain things in your life, maybe things that have begun to potentially border on idolatry for you, things that, that maybe have become too important to you and things that, that maybe are hindering your ability to be in a relationship with God or a relationship with others. And so, so throughout, it's been exciting to see throughout our church, people giving up Facebook, alcohol, food, television, uh, you name it. People are giving up all kinds of different things. And then, and then it's not just giving up, right? It's not just fasting. It's then filling yourself with a further pursuit of God. So, so maybe it's devoting more time to meditating on the Word of God, or maybe it's devoting more time to, to praying and, and just using these materials, these tools to rebuild our souls. To be a very place where the Spirit of God can come and dwell within our midst. Of course, the, the question emerges then, I think, a question emerges that, well, you know, what, what really is the point of all this rebuilding? I mean, what's the point? Only all this rebuilding of the temple. What, what, what are we rebuilding for? What's the purpose of the temple? 
And we come to this passage, and it just makes it very clear for us what it is. The purpose of the temple is to offer sacrifices to God. That's the purpose of the temple. That was the purpose of the temple there. The purpose of the temple is to offer sacrifices to God. And that's what we see going on here in the first, uh, you know, first six verses. They talk about these various sacrifices. They set up the altar, and they, and they set up these different sacrifices. They have their, the regular, regular sacrifices, the morning and evening sacrifices, which, which requires sacrificing a lamb in the morning and a lamb in the evening. Uh, we, we see that there were sacrifices that went in accordance with the Feast of Tabernacles. They were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles um, at, in this season. Uh, so different sacrifices for that. Then there's the new moon sacrifices, uh, sacrifices to celebrate the beginning of a new month. Right? And this involves sacrificing bulls and lambs and some other animals and stuff. And so we see this whole passage about sacrifice. So there, the, the purpose of the temple here is to offer sacrifices. Now, what, what does that mean for us today, though, right? And here's what, we, what we've seen is that, is that in light of the coming of Christ, all of this is redefined. We, we've, seen, we've seen all of this redefined. We've seen exile redefined. Exile for them was exile in Babylon. Exile for us is this deeper, pointing to this deeper level of exile, which all of humanity throughout all of history has been in, and that's... That's the exile of sin and idolatry. So this sort of taking this and then this redefinition as Christ is the fulfillment of it, right? So going back, the, the, you can't read the book of Ezra on its own. You've got to start there. I mean, you've, got, you've got to understand it on its own. But, but then also we've got to see how it fits into the overarching narrative of Scripture, that it's not just a story on its own. It fits into this larger narrative of Scripture that is on this trajectory that finds its fulfillment in the climax, which is the person of Jesus. And so every passage points us to Jesus, and to really understand any passage for us today, we need to understand it in light of the coming of Christ. And so we've seen this, we've seen exile redefined, we see the temple redefined, not as a physical place, but as the people of God, the very people of God become the temple. We saw the qualifications for entrance into the, into the promised land, into the kingdom of God, no longer on the basis of, of, of Jewish ethnicity and religious culture, but, but now on the basis of faith. We saw the materials change, not gold and silver, but now prayer and meditation and, and, all, and all of this. And so, so now we come to this issue well, of sacrifice, and we're going to see again that sacrifice is redefined. But at this point, I think I might, I might just highlight that this passage reveals something to us, because some of us might still be thinking, I, you know, this whole redefinition thing, I mean, you're just taking this, you know, it's a temple, and now it's the soul, and you're, you're just redefining all of that, and you know, is that really okay? Does that really make sense? to do that. And what I actually want to highlight is that what Jesus does and what the New Testament writers do when they begin to redefine these things, they're actually not doing anything unprecedented. They take it to a whole nother level because Jesus is the fulfillment of this entire trajectory, but they're not actually doing anything within the biblical tradition that was entirely unprecedented. In fact, we find right in here an indication that the people of Israel had already come to redefine certain aspects of their life and their religion and culture in light of various acts of God. 
It's just subtle here. It's, it's when it mentions that they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what's, well, let me back up here before I talk about the Feast of Tabernacles. The Israelites, uh, at, their, at, their, at their most basic, well, it seems that originally they basically have these three festivals throughout their life, throughout their, their calendar, that they would celebrate. Uh, and it was the, uh, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the first month. Uh, then in the third month, you had the Feast of, of Weeks. And then in the seventh month, you had the Feast of Ingathering. So you had Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, and Feast of Ingathering. And these feasts were all associated with the agricultural calendar. And so the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a celebration of the first fruits of the barley harvest. The Feast of Weeks was a celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And the, the Feast of Ingathering was a celebration at the end, sort of, of the final harvest of all of the crops. Now, what we need to understand is that in light of the Exodus, when God, through Moses, delivered the people of Israel, we find that these, these have a different character to them as well. There's a secondary meaning to these events. And so what you discover is that the Feast of Unleavened Bread is associated not just with the agricultural calendar, but it's, it's associated with how they left Egypt in haste. It becomes associated with the Passover feast. And then we discover that the Feast of Weeks actually becomes associated with the, the giving of the law when they were at Mount Sinai because it actually says that they arrived at Mount Sinai at the same time as the Feast of Weeks. And then actually, and this gets to the point here, the, the Feast of Ingathering becomes increasingly associated, it becomes the Feast of Tabernacles, associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a celebration of God's provision for them when they were wandering in Egypt. And so we, we see, actually, that's the emphasis here. The emphasis of the Feast of Tabernacles is so they've, in light of God's salvific acts, in light of God's act through Moses and that deliverance, they begin to redefine and, and add to their understanding of this. And so I'm just saying this to highlight that what the New Testament writers is not actually entirely unprecedented. When they begin to redefine these things in the story of the people of God in light of the coming of Christ. And so we've seen the redefinition of exile, the redefinition of deliverance, the redefinition of, of the temple, and now we come to the redefinition of sacrifice. Now, in light of the coming of Christ, how is the redefinition of sacrifice? What are we going to discover? And here's what we're going to discover. Is that we are called not to offer animal sacrifice, but personal sacrifice. We're called not to offer sacrificial lambs, but sacrificial love. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 on page 1,194 of your pew Bibles. And we're going to look here. We're going to see in Hebrews that sacrifice is redefined. Just like two weeks ago when we looked at Ephesians and we saw the temple being redefined, no longer as this building to be built, but as the people of God themselves. And just like last week when we looked at Galatians and we saw that the qualifications for entrance had been redefined, no longer a matter of, of Jewish ethnicity and cultural religious performance, 
but as a matter of faith. And then here in Hebrews, we're going to find, we're going to see that sacrifice is similarly redefined in light of the coming of Christ. So here we are in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. And what this is going to be talking about is the day of atonement, this very central day in the life of the calendar of the people of Israel, uh, this, this, this day that was the most important day of sacrifice, the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. It was the one day when the high priest could actually go into the, 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 the holy of holies, would go in with the blood that had been sacrificed and, uh, and, and would be taken into the holy of holies once a year. And that, that's what is being described here in verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. It's talking about how they, with this sacrifice, the, the, the bodies would actually, of the animals would actually then be taken outside the camp to be burned and disposed of. So they're just describing the sacrifice in that Old Testament system. Then here in verse 12, we see it redefined in light of the coming of Christ. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. You see, here we come to the very heart of the Christian faith. And that is that Jesus is the final atoning sacrifice. That the blood of bulls and goats, as it says in Hebrews elsewhere, could could never take away sin, right? What is... What is sacrifice all about? And I'm not going to go into all the details of the Old Testament sacrificial system, but, but just at its core, it was something that pointed to forgiveness of sin. It was forgiveness of sin. It was, you, you, you would offer these sacrifices in order to be reconciled with God, reconciled to God is, it, through forgiveness. And so you, you're, but, but the whole point is, well, how does that actually, what does sacrificing a lamb or a bull do to actually make you right with God? Because what you realize is that for some... You know, if God is really going to forgive, then he's got to be the one to take the blow. Right? I mean, if you forgive somebody, right? I mean, like, if somebody owes you 30 bucks and somebody else gives them 30 bucks, you didn't forgive them. You didn't forgive them. You only forgave them if it came from you. And so this is the point. It's got to be God himself that takes it upon himself. And so in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself has, has, has taken our sin from us. And we don't need to bring anything else before him to try to make it right. That's my prayer for you as you go before the confession tree or as you go home and confess or as you go to a friend and confess or as maybe you come forward at the end of the service and you confess, you know you're confessing before a God who died for you to forgive you of your sin. That he's the final atoning sacrifice. So we see sacrifice being redefined. But then notice this. Then notice this. Oh, it says, well, verse 13. Don't want to miss this. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. It's saying, go to him. Go to him for atonement. Go to him for forgiveness. Go to him with your disgrace. Go to him with your dishonor, just as he was disgraced, dishonored on your behalf. You go to him, that's where you're going to find forgiveness. 
Then in verse 15, it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. You see, sacrifice has been redefined. Sacrifice, sacrifice now isn't about sacrificial animals. It's about sacrificial love. And, of course, that was always there. It was always there even in the Old Testament. It pointed to that. Hosea 6.6 6 says, God says, you know, I, 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 I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And there he's talking about, I desire mercy. I desire love. I desire sacrificial love, not your, your sacrificial system. I mean, even there, it was pointing to all of this, right? And so this is what it is in light of the coming of Christ. Is we don't offer animal sacrifice. We offer personal sacrifice. And it's important to understand that, that there were these different, two different kinds of sacrifice, a number of different kinds of sacrifices, but there was atoning sacrifices and then sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. That's what these are. They, they, we, we don't do good to atone for our sin. That's already been done. That's the final sacrifice. No, no, we do good as a, as, a, as a sacrifice of thanks, of thankfulness for what God has done. Romans 12. It, it's almost like in two verses in Hebrews, it sums up what Paul takes 12 chapters to cover in Romans. And then he comes to the same point in Romans 12. When he says, therefore, brothers, I urge you, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He's saying, in view of God's mercy, right? This, this, don't do this to atone for your sin. This is, this is an offering of thanksgiving in view of His mercy. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So, friends, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of our rebuilding of our souls, the rebuilding of the temple? It's simply this. It's to become more and more people who offer sacrificial love. Notice here, it's, 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 not, it's, it's not like it's replacing animal sacrifice with further kind of religion. Right? It's, it's, and I think that's easy for us to think. We can make this kind of misconception that, well, you know, just like how the Israelites went to the temple and sacrificed animals, we come to the church and we sing songs of praise. Right? I mean, just like they, you know, they did their animal sacrifice, well, that's been redefined. So we come to the church and we sing and we pray. Well, and that's true to a certain extent. That is, right? That we come and, and we worship and we sing, and that, that can be an offering of thanksgiving to God. And, and when we when we gather together in community group and we study His Word and we, and we seek to, to praise Him and, and whatnot, yeah, that, that's an offering of praise. But well, here, here's what we need to understand here. That, that most fundamentally, true worship at its very core comes out in sacrificial love. Or to put it another way, get this. The purpose of your soul is not to enter into the presence of God. 
The purpose of your soul is having had the presence of God already come in to go out and be the presence of God in this world. The purpose of your life is not to go to the temple. The purpose of your life is to be the temple out in the world. The purpose of your life is not to enter into the presence of God. That's not the purpose of your soul. The purpose of your soul is, is having the Spirit of God, having already come into your life to go out and be the presence of God in this world. Another way of saying this, you know, is that, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is not worship, confession, study, prayer, meditation. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It talks about what happens when the Spirit begins to work in people's lives. Fruit of the Spirit. What, the fruit of the, and it talks about, you know, the acts of the flesh and all of this kind of, you know, nasty stuff, right? And, and then it talks about what happens when the Spirit comes upon you. And, and it, it, it doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is going to church, joining a community group, confessing before the confession tree, right? It doesn't say anything. You know what it says? It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, that, that, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Again, the purpose of your life is... It's not to go to church and, and go to the temple. Your, your purpose of your soul and your life is to be the temple out in the world. And so this brings us back to my original question. As Christians, what are we known for? What are we known for? Are we known for our religion? Or are we known for our love? When people say, oh, yeah, they're a Christian, I know they're a Christian, what are they thinking? What do they think that means? They think, oh, yeah, they go to church. Oh, they're a Christian. Oh, yeah, they, they believe in that Jesus guy. They go to church. Oh, yeah, they, they, like, do some weird Bible study where they eat before it. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. They are weird people. I mean, is that what they think? Or when they think, oh, he's a Christian? Oh, yeah, he... He's just, he's really helpful in the office. And sometimes he'll even work with me on my projects when I know he's got stuff to do, but he finds a way to help to work with me. Oh, yeah, he's a, he's a Christian. He's the one that's, you know, he's, he's patient when everybody else isn't. As Christians, what are we known for? Are we known for our religion or are we known for our love? Now, there are two things we need to understand. We need to understand, and that is that, first of all, as we seek to be the presence of God in this world, we won't do it perfectly. We won't do it perfectly. There will always be room for improvement. And actually, our text even points to this. We notice here the second half of this text talks about laying the foundation, laying the foundation of the actual temple. They laid the foundation of the actual temple. And, and they, it goes on here, 
verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with, uh, and with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols took their places to praise the Lord and, and prescribed by David, king of Israel, as prescribed by David, king of Israel, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love to Israel endures forever. And all the people, all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But then in verse 12, but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. What is it talking about here? It's talking about how the grandeur of this new temple that was being built simply did not compare to Solomon's temple. It just did not compare. It just, and, and those who remembered the former temple, they knew this. They, they saw from the foundation, they're like, oh, this is the temple we're about. This, this is not what the temple is supposed to be like. I, I suspect that, you know, the, that really the, the reason why they, they couldn't build a temple that big is that here's the difference. Israel was still under occupation. They were still under the control of, of foreign occupying nations, whereas during the time of Solomon, he was king and he ruled. And, and so as long as they were still, as long as there was still opposition, as long as there was still another king kind of, kind of hovering over, they were never going to be able to get that temple to be the same as it was with Solomon. Here's what you've got to understand. As long as we live in a world where sin and idolatry are still alive and well, our souls are never going to be what they can be what they could be, what they will be one day. This is not going to be perfect. We've got to understand that this isn't going to be perfect. It's not going to be done perfectly. But secondly, it also doesn't happen automatically. This idea of, this idea of offering sacrifices of love sacrificial love, isn't going to just happen automatically. It's not like if you just build the soul, build your temple, then the sacrifices are just going to happen automatically. I mean, let's put it this way. When they built the altar, when they built the altar for the animals, it's not like they built the altar and then like all kind of ran back and kind of hid and just kind of waited for the animals to come and run and jump up on the altar, you know? And they're like, well, I don't get this. Why, why are they not running up there? We built the altar for them. They're not going up there, right? It didn't happen automatically. The sacrifices didn't happen automatically. They, they had to, in, you know, institute or implement this, the, the priestly system to make this happen. There was some intentionality involved. And, and, and here's what I'm getting at. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, th- th- these are all they, the fruit of the Spirit, but it also requires intentionality. In other words, if you're, you see, as we begin to participate in these these practices that can build our souls, whether it's meditation on God's Word or it's fasting or confession, we, we need to understand that, you see, what that does is it actually enables us to be able to act in accordance with how God would want us. To, it, it gives us the power to do so. But it's not going to happen automatically. You, you can't just be like, well, I don't get it. I'm, 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 I'm praying and I'm reading my Bible, and I'm, but, you know... 
I, things aren't really any better in my marriage. I don't really know why. Well, there's some intentionality involved. You, you decide, you know, I need to, I need to reach out to my wife. I need to, uh, I need to, to I need to decide. I'm going to, I'm going to do the dishes for her this week. You see what this, what the spiritual disciplines can do is, is maybe make that a little bit easier on you. Begin to foster in you a. Make it a little bit easier for you to carry that out. But it still requires intentionality. If you're, if you're like, I, you know, I want to be a better father. I want to be a better father. So you're like, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to study the Word of God, and I'm going to confess. And I, I don't get it. I'm not being a better father. Well, you, you just you got to be intentional. Like, what are you going to do differently? you got to map that out, and, and hopefully as the Spirit begins to work in you, it'll be easier. Because Christ is carrying you through this. His very spirit, the very spirit that raised him from the dead is carrying you through this. But it still requires that level of intentionality. So in conclusion, I I just want to ask you this. I want to ask you, in what ways is God encouraging you to intentionally reach out with sacrificial love? In what ways is God leading you? And in what ways is God leading you in your heart, in your home, and in your neighborhood? In what ways is God leading you to be more intentional in terms of offering sacrificial love in your heart, in your home, and in your neighborhood? Heart, home, hood. Hood. That was dumb. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. In your heart, in your heart. You see, sacrificial love actually begins in your heart. Loving another person begins in the heart. And so to be intentional about loving someone for you, it might be this. It might be being intentional about letting go of bitterness towards someone. That yes, as, as, as you seek Lord through prayer and meditation, that my prayer is that it'll be easier to let that bitterness go, but there's still that point of intentionality where you give it up, you let it go. Loving somebody sacrificially means getting rid of that anger that you might have towards someone. And being intentional about, I'm going to let this go, Spirit of God, help me to let this go. Sacrificial love begins in the heart. Who is God calling you to intentionally, intentionally love sacrificially first with your heart, then in your home, right? Practically, how is God calling you, husbands, how is God calling you to intentionally love your wife, to be more kind or gentle or patient or whatever it is? What practical things is is God calling you to do, whether it's taking her out or offering to do this for her or or, or refusing, or, or, or a greater intentionality with, with showing patience, or whatever it is. What is God leading you to do in your home? What is God leading you to do with your children? To offer sacrificial love for them. And then in your neighborhood. In your neighborhood. 
We're, we're called to be the presence of God out in the world. How is God calling you to offer sacrificial love intentionally in your neighborhood? Who, who are the two people? Who are two people that God is leading you to have intentional gospel-centered influence on in their lives? A coworker, a neighbor. We'll start with two people. We'll keep it simple. Just two people that you feel like, you know, I think God is leading me to be the presence of God in their lives. Whatever capacity I can be. And so I want to do that. And once again, we've got to realize this, it's not going to happen automatically. We've got to have some intentionality. Because what is the purpose of our souls? What is the purpose of our lives? It's to offer sacrificial love. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you for your abundant grace. God, we praise you that You have called us to greater things, Lord. God, I pray that this call to love others would really stem from a heart of thankfulness. Not out of a sense of duty or obligation. God, that we might see that that the life that you have for us is, is the best life. That to walk that road is the life, the path of eternal life, Lord. That we would have the faith to believe that, to trust in that. Lord, I pray that it would stem from a greater appreciation of the cross. God, I pray that first and foremost, you would break us, Lord. You would break us of our self-righteousness that hinders us from seeing our need for grace. Though we say it with our head that we need grace in our hearts, we're still self-righteous, Lord. And I pray you would break us of that, humble us, that we might come before you in honest confession and receive your grace, Lord. And then, and then out of that, Lord, that we might, might go with the same posture that you gave us that we might give to others. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.